do the Lou Solid story, like the birthday thing, right? Yeah, yeah. We're at the 55. Are, you, are we taping already? Oh, I no. don't know. We're just warming <laughs> uh, up. The Lou Solid story is, you know, Lou was a dear client for a long time and a friend, too. And uh, he used to do a gig at the 55 bar on his birthday. And I went. And uh, after one of the tunes, people started, in between tunes, everybody could started singing happy birthday. So I'm in the corner and I'm going, you know, I'm going along with my little trumpet thing, thinking he might notice and get a laugh out of it. Okay, and then it stops and Lou plays a couple more tunes. And then later on, Lou stops and he says, okay, everybody, my friend Jack's going to come up and play now. Jack, come up and finish what you were playing earlier. And I go, Lou. <laughs> you know, it's one thing to do this and everything, but now I'm at the 55 bar, which I've gone to since like 1986 to see Mike Stern. And there's some people here. And I go up to the mic and I said to myself, I'm going to close my eyes and do this. So I'm going to do happy birthday. But I knew the most important thing, if I was going to get a cool reaction mostly out of Lou, I had to do something like the session players do. Because the session players that I know and love and work for and the guys who you listen to as well as a fan, they do something that no one else could do. They put a spin on it. And I knew right away what I was going to do. So I started doing happy birthday and get to the end, and here's what I did. I'm up there and I go... I dropped down a couple octaves because Lou would do that on particular tunes. It was like a foghorn noise. And I, I held it and I faded it out and everybody's clapping. Later on, I'm giving Lou a ride home. Every time I would see Lou, I'd give him a ride home. And we're cutting through the back streets there to get onto the west side to go up to his place. And he's sitting there in my passenger seat and he goes, did you have fun tonight? I was like, yeah, yeah. He goes, well, you nervous? I said, yeah. He goes, I knew you would be. And we had a great laugh. He was a great guy. But he he sounds like he was really tickled by it. Like he, he Oh, yeah, he got a kick out of it. happy about it. Yeah, yeah. so that, that, that was fun. Once in a while, the nature of this is music. Everybody, you know, people love music. So when the situations are right, you can become friends with your clients and still keep a balance. And I've been lucky to, to do that. Welcome to the East Main Media Podcast, a series of conversations featuring leaders in a variety of subjects, including business, politics, media, and the arts. For more information, visit eastmainmedia.com forward slash podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by JLC Accounting, bookkeeping, accounting, tax preparation, and advisory. Visit jlc-accounting.com and by Tap Into TV, original video programming covering topics of interest in New Jersey, New York, and beyond. Visit tapintotv.net. Now here's your host, Brian Brodeur. I'm thrilled to be joined today by Jack Frisch, friend, colleague, superstar, personality, impressionist. Oh, I'm just joking. Jack, thanks for joining me. Uh, we've known each Thank other for you. a number of years. Yeah, uh, introduced yeah. by the great Andrew, Andrew Lepley, Lepley. Right? We can come back to Andrew and you know, throw him under the bus appropriately later. Yeah. 
Let's start right off the bat. Uh, we have a lot of uh, interesting things we can talk about, but I wanted to sort of set up the conversation as the things you do in the world are a very unique combination. You are a web and CD packaging designer mm -hmm. for musicians. You work also in the transport or cartage business, mm -hmm. also for musicians. And these musicians are specifically mainly in the jazz world yes. in the New York area. Mm -hmm. But you also have a number of other interests, which we'll talk about a little bit, including uh, automotive and things mm -hmm. like that. But that combination of things you do in the music industry, in the music uh, community, is unique. Would you start telling me about that and sort of what you do? Give me the global view of your design and your transport work. Well, I have uprightgraphics.com, my business for design, and then I have Upright Transport. The Upright comes from uh, having an upright base at the end of my uh, design table for many years, and I kind of named my companies after that. I went to school for writing, hmm. computer programming, and also had a minor in Shakespeare studies because I took so many of those courses. And I, I understood the mechanics of the plays. I might not always understood the grammatic end or the language. And I ended up being in the design world mm. because uh, as far back as high school, I was cutting and pasting together my high school newspaper. And within months of my freshman year, I knew how to put a newspaper together. So that was the, the early days of heading towards being a designer. Sure. And then I had several different jobs, magazines and newspapers in the area. And then I was working at Nobody Beats the Wiz as a graphic artist and like assistant art director designer. And I uh, reached out to Hiram Bullock, the late guitar player, session player, who I was a fan of for many years, to do some design work for him. I went to see him. I hadn't seen him for many years. I went to see him at uh, Manny's Car Wash, the venue. Sure. And then after that, I sent him some ideas for posters because, you know, you always see handwritten posters. Somebody's appearing tonight here at a venue. And I said, oh, let me design something that he can reuse that will look a little better than handwritten. And that might have been a little naive on my part, but... I found a big, like, 18 by 24 envelope, the biggest manila envelope I could find at work, and I put the designs in it, thinking, who's going to throw this out? They're going to open this. It's not going to get lost or pushed aside. And it worked. And the next time he played, like, a month or so later, I went to see him, and at the end of the night, he's autographing some CDs, and I said, did you get that envelope? And he goes, oh, man, that was you. I said, yeah. And we talked, and he said, uh, you know, I don't have a need for a, a designer right now, but, you know. And about a week later, I got a call from Hiram's girlfriend. They wanted me to design his website. So that oh. was, that's kind of how it took off. Let's connect the dots there a little bit. So, I mean, you were working uh, sort of in the design field. Full time. The, right, yeah. the whiz, and had that set of skills. But you're a music fan, so you're out yeah. kind of catching the bands playing around town. And so you connected those, right? Yeah. What drove you to do that? Wow. I don't think anyone's ever asked me that. That's well, um, my job. That's why we're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. It just happened. I guess I wanted, to, I wanted to work in music. I had done a poster for harmonica player William Gallison when he was playing live at a church uptown in Manhattan. And that was like my first actual music design. And I guess at the time, I, I don't remember, but I guess I just wanted to do something for Hiram because I was familiar with his work. So 
it just seemed like a natural step without even a step being there. I just did it. Right, because you were interested and it was, seemed cool. Yeah, I, I mean, I didn't even know. I don't think I even had a vision of doing CDs at that point. Mm. It, it, just, it just happened. Uh, so wait, so website work before you designed CDs? I did. Hiram's website was the first website I did. When I did that, I didn't even own a computer. I, I snuck it all in at work. And I did roughs. I took paper, color Xeroxes of, uh, I had all the material. I had all the CDs and I cut out different things and laid it out almost like a, a school project that a young student would do on eight and a half by 11 pieces of paper horizontally. And that's what I presented to him. And uh, I didn't even have a, a computer at that point. I hadn't even been online at that point. I mean, I this is nothing early about, on. This is 1997. I knew nothing about the internet. Wow. Websites were really in the early stages. And, and this site actually, I was told, became like a cult following. It was one of the earliest websites for someone, mm. a session player. Interesting. So I went to his house for a meeting and I had my portfolio with these eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper representing pages of a website. And we sat down in Hiram's apartment and uh, he said, you know, man, I'm thinking maybe we do it on a black background. And I smiled and I said, look at this. And I slid forward my portfolio, which was already unzipped and we opened it up and all the pages were like on a black background. And he looks at it and goes, that's it. Don't change a thing. That's the site. <laughs> and we literally put the site up based on those cutouts. Well, it's like making a movie with storyboards, like boom. Yeah, it was like a storyboard approach, wow. and that was it, boom. Let me jump in here for uh, people who may be listening to this who don't know who Hiram Bullock was, the late Hiram Bullock. Yeah. I think it's fair to say most people may know him as the original guitar player from Dave Letterman's NBC show. Yes. Where that band was Hiram on guitar, Paul Schaefer as band leader on keyboards, Willie on bass. And Steve Jordan Steve on drums. Steve Jordan on drums. Yeah, that was the band. And Hiram, uh, a lot of people also knew him as that guitar player who didn't always wear shoes <laughs> or socks. He was a barefoot guitarist. But that wasn't his uh, name, so to speak. People referred to him as that. But yeah, and I was already a fan of him at that point. Right. And uh, session player, playing a lot of records. Great session player. The, uh, people probably don't realize they've heard Hiram. Right. I mean, he's the guitar player on Billy Joel's The Stranger album. It was one of his earliest sessions. But yeah, it was a great treat, to say the least, to uh, be able to work for him for many years. Right, and of course, you, you became quite close with him. Yeah. And after his passing, uh, tell me a little bit about hosting the Tribute Radio Show. Oh, it's a, a radio show uh, I got invited to after Hiram passed away. I had driven him down to WFDU to promote a live concert in the city. So he did a radio interview with Bob Putangano at his time slot on the radio show. And uh, I sat there during the interview we had with Hiram and, and afterwards Bob got to know me a little and I ran into him at one of Hiram's last gigs in New York at the Blue Note. So when Hiram passed away, Bob contacted me uh, either via phone or email and said, would you like to come in and do a, a show, a tribute show to Hiram? And uh, it was supposed to be an hour. It went for two hours. And uh, we did it for the next eight years. It got to have a, only just one time a year around September 11th, which was Hiram's birthday. Mm. And it got to have a following. And I started doing themes. And I, I, he just left it for me to come up with the whole program. And cool. it was fun. It was fun. We don't do it anymore because the station went through some changes. He's not there anymore. But 
you know, it got broadcast out internationally and it got to have a following. So yeah, it was amazing. It was fun. Let me circle around. You've worked with and continue to work with a lot of very uh, sort of A-list music icons, and especially in the jazz world. Let me name drop a few. Sure. And you can take them and run with them as you'd like. Okay. Um, we are recording this, of course, in Little Falls, New Jersey, right over the hill from Montclair, New Jersey, where the great Christian McBride lives and uh, operates the Montclair Jazz Festival and Jazz House Kids. You have worked a lot with Christian in recent years. Let's continue that list. Mike Stern, Paul Schaefer, Lenny White, Victor Bailey, mm. the late Victor Bailey. The mic is yours. Tell me a little bit about working with all these great artists. Uh, uh, Chris McBride, I uh, designed his website and still continue to be the webmaster of it. Incredible artist. Bass and, player, and band leader. He's, as some people would say, all over the place. He's involved in a lot of great projects, and he, uh, he's incredible. And a lot of people don't realize not only is he an upright player, but he's equally proficient and beautiful playing on electric fretless bass. Yeah, wow. And... Uh, a lot of fun to uh, get to know him and, and work with him. Victor Bailey, wow, like Hiram, a lot of impact on me. Yeah, recently uh, passed. Yeah, 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 yeah. Th almost three years ago. We were very close. Great and, player. Uh, great player. He, at age 18, took Jocko's bass slot over in Weather Report and had his own voice and, and shined. And a lot of people probably wouldn't have been able to handle that. But working with Victor was great. I uh, designed a CD for him, his last CD, Slippin' and Trippin'. I designed his website and still maintain it. And I also transported his gear and assisted him. Victor told me, uh, really said a nice thing to me one time. We were at his apartment getting ready to go to a gig, getting his gear ready to bring it down to my car. And he said, you know, Joe Zalano used to tell me, Jack, if you find a guy that will take care of you and do everything for you. You keep them and you keep them happy. And uh, that was really sweet of him to say. And then he said, you know, Jack, back in the day when I was with Weather Report, we would have like a budget of thousands of dollars for a guy like you, you know? And uh, it was just nice to hear that, you know? He sounded like he appreciated you, but also, you know, jazz players, the, the jazz community, it's become harder to earn the big money, you know, mm. that market has slipped away from the jazz community a little bit yeah. and you got to play a lot. I mean, still, I mean, yeah. jazz players have to get out and gig a lot yeah. and stay super active. And I guess in some ways it's easier to record now, you know, with digital technology, although jazz players want to have great sounding records too. So, you know, they still want to get into the nice studios and, and get beautiful sounding recordings that maybe you can't get at home. That's a whole nother topic for another day. We'll be right back to the conversation after this brief message from our sponsor. Today's podcast is brought to you by JLC Accounting, bookkeeping, accounting, tax preparation, and advisory. Visit jlc-accounting.com and by Tap Into TV original video programming covering topics of interest in New Jersey, New York, and beyond. Visit tapintotv.net. I want to continue to name drop for you a little bit. You were telling me offline here uh, prior to the uh, interview about the latest Blues Brothers album and Paul Schaefer. Tell me a little bit about that. 
Blues Brothers' latest album, The Last Shade of Blue Before Black, is their <laughs> latest CD, and they hadn't recorded it in a while, a long time. And uh, I work for Lou Marini, uh, the saxophone player. Blue Lou. Blue Lou yeah. Marini. And I've been working with him for a handful of years. Uh, did a CD for him called Star Maker, and I maintain and manage his website. I'm his webmaster. So... Uh, when they started to work on heading towards doing the recordings and stuff, he approached me and then I got the gig to photograph and design a CD. Cool. Which is really special because the first vinyl record I ever bought wasn't a Beatle album, wasn't a Rolling Stones album. It was the Blues Brothers' first album, which, by the way, if you look at the liner notes, and I was looking at one night because mm. I was updating info for Lou's discography, that album was recorded and released, I think, less than a month. They knew, the record labels knew this was a big deal. Wow. And if you look at the dates, I don't remember exactly, but it was almost like within weeks this was out there. So what a thrill to be able to work on an album for them. And it's just, wow. <laughs> well, you know, let's look back at that. I mean, that, the Blues Brothers, if I'm correct, essentially came out of the John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd kind of comedic duo out of SNL. Yeah. With the capabilities of Paul Schaefer and that band behind them. Yeah, all the session cats. All and those for guys. For some reason that whatever age, I mean. Tom Malone on yeah, Bone. I knew that yeah. that was a serious thing. Yes, there was the comical side of it. But for some reason I knew, maybe I read it or saw it somewhere, I knew these guys were the heavy hitters. Yeah, and, Duck and Dunn the, and Steve Cropper. Oh, Duck and, Dunn, that's right. And, and all yeah. all the cats. And it was like, Steve wow. Steve Jordan on drums too, Steve right? Steve Jordan on, that, on drums. On that early album, uh, yeah. And I knew that, so I went out and got that album. And it was not about the comical aspect for me. It was like I knew there was some serious music going on. And maybe that's the earliest uh, exposure of mine to session players. Hmm. Yeah, but, maybe. Uh, I mean, there's great playing on that record. I mean, yeah, people think, oh, Rubber Biscuits on that, right? <laughs> yeah. And oh, up front is Ackroyd Belushi, but... Yeah, the players are, are killing. Yeah, and they were pretty darn good, too, as well. I mean, there it, it was a comical aspect there, but Belushi and Acro were really good on that. I want to do a Blues Brothers shout-out for a second. The live album after the movie, if I'm correct, Made in America? Is Made that... in America. Uh, I'm not really familiar about that. I noticed some tunes on it that are live that were from— Probably from the that Hollywood Bowl recording that they did for Briefcase, which right. was the first. But— uh, I think it's music that didn't make it to the first album. Now, on that. Going Back to Miami is on that record, if I'm correct. <laughs> yeah. And there's a Steve Jordan drum break I want to hit people to. If, you're, if you haven't heard that, there's a killing drum break in the middle of that tune. Just yeah. funky and tasty. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry for the left turn on that. No, no. It's, it's... So uh, you were telling me recently, Paul Schaefer, you were doing some stuff with Paul. Yeah, I did Paul Schaefer's website. He never had one up until this point. How is that and possible? You know, yeah, that right? Paul hasn't had so, a website. Uh, I believe Will Lee mentioned my name to him, but I got a call one day from uh, a woman who got hired to do publicity for Paul cool. and said, you know, Paul needs a website. And uh, we heard that uh, you're the guy, whatever she said. Yeah, yeah. And I started running down to people who I did sites for who Paul worked with. Sure. Again, Hiram, Lou Saloff, Will, and halfway down that list, she goes, oh, oh, my God, you're it. We got to yeah, have you. Yeah. <laughs> and then she said, I'm going to have Paul call you. And Paul knows me from the scene, from working all these years with everybody. And 10 minutes later, he called me. And we talked for a minute, and I said, well, here's what I'm thinking. 
And he goes, well, that this is not my wheelhouse. You just do your thing. <laughs> and uh, he let me go. And he just wanted one page or two pages because the band from the show was going out on a tour. They had the new album after the show closed and went off the air. So they needed to get something up online real quick. Oh, this is from the NBC switch to CBS with Letterman? You no, mean? when no. Letterman CBS show went off the air. Oh, the, oh, got it. Paul and the band were going like on a, a little tour around the country and playing. Wow. So they needed to get something up right away. So I knew that, but that's easy. I wanted to get the whole site up. So well, before I got off the phone, I had the whole site literally designed. I'm not kidding. I had it all designed in my head. Yeah. So what I did is I worked around the clock and I had the entire site done in two days. And then I wrote some text and, and copy. And uh, when Paul looked at it, he literally changed one comma. And it was put online like that day, like, you know, two days. It was done in two days. We took a few other days to proof it, but basically it went up just how I laid it out and and programmed it. That's amazing. I mean, Paul Schaefer, he's like the crossroads of music. He's played behind everybody. Well, if you if you grew up you know, watching Sign Out Live as far back as, what, the first year? 76, right? You would see him doing what he does, everything, and multi-talented. But also, I was fortunate to see him live many times do what he does, and yeah, it's special. So here's a segue for you. I, I want to talk about Mike Stern a little bit, mm-hmm. fusion jazz guitar player yeah. Mike Stern, also a New York kind of legend, yeah. been around for a number of years. But I want to connect this to your transport business and how you got into transporting equipment for musicians. Now, for people who may be listening to this interview, this conversation, can you start by explaining what transporting equipment for musicians means? And then connect that to working with Mike Stern, please. Sure. Well, around New York or any town where there's a lot of venues, musicians need to get their gear to a venue for sound check hours ahead of when they're going to play. And then that equipment needs to be set up and there needs to be a sound check to make sure volume levels are right and all those kind of details. There are guys around town who have old white vans that are beat <laughs> up and they're called cartage guys. Yeah. I don't refer to myself as a cartage guy because I offer a lot more than just dropping off the gear at the door and then turning around and pulling away. Right. I refer to what I do as transport and assist. So like a cartage guy, I will transport equipment to the venue. But unlike a cartage guy, I stay around. I set up the gear, and then for someone like Mike Stern, who knows I know his music, Mike expects me to stay around and walk around the venue during sound check and let him know what needs to be adjusted or whatever, which is a great responsibility, one I really enjoy. And clearly you have the experience to provide. As a listener of his music, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but he trusts you too. Yeah, which is a great, dare say, honor and trust. And again, all of this goes back to Hiram Bullock. I started just helping Hiram with his gear, and then it became kind of a thing that I would do for him. And it was fun. It gave me extra time to hang out with him. And then I started doing it around town very casually, you know, help Will Lee with his bass gear, uh, help Marcus Miller, another client of mine. And then at some point after transporting the legendary bass player, Scott LaFaro's bass, to a recording session, I said, you know what? I said to myself, it's time to have a website for this work because I hadn't. 
and I'm known for doing what I do for Mike Stern, where I'll do the assisting, the transporting, but I also just transport upright bases. That's kind of like my specialty. Mm. In and around the area, as far as down to DC, all the way up to Rhode Island, uh, one man operation. I'm the only one handling the instruments. And uh, sometimes uh, I'm transporting three or four uprights at a time of all different ages and makes and values. That kind of work, I'll bring them to a shop. I'll pick somebody up in an airport. I'll bring them to a, a recording session. But when it comes to someone like Mike Stern or Lenny White or what I did for Hiram and Victor Bailey, it's it's a lot more. Now, if I recall, you mentioned to me a story about transporting an upright base, a historic upright base, yeah. to a repair shop. Can you relate that story for me? Yeah. I was instrumental in saving a legendary base. I worked for Mike Merritt of the Conan O'Brien show and a session player. And we were finishing up, finalizing some details of his website at his New York apartment when he was in town because they did the show in California. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were dedicating an area to his father, Jimmy Merritt, upright bass player who played with Art Blakey and recorded. And he's on a lot of old Blue Note albums. Many, I'm not even familiar with, there's so many. And I asked him, I said, does your dad still have a bass because his dad's in his early 90s now and, and not playing actively anymore. And he goes, yeah, it's in the back room. I said, can I look at it? And he goes, yeah. So we're walking back and he goes, you know, the bass needs some work. And so there it is. I'm looking at it and it's all there. The top, the sides, it's all intact, the body. It wasn't really strung up. He had the bridge, but it needs some work. It had some cracks in it, you know, but bases uh, throughout the year, any bases will tell you they have to get crack repair done for the weather, the fluctuating weather. Bases are like people there. They're living and breathing in one regard. So uh, I looked at it and he was getting estimates that were like anywhere from 15 grand to $25,000 and up to get it restored. And I looked at it and I said, uh, Mike, I, I think I can get this restore for you and save you a lot of money. I can take it to one of the shops I work with out in Pennsylvania. He goes, take it. <laughs> so I'm walking out now to my car with this famous base. And the next day I'm 200 miles away and it's laying on top of a shop with a light and it getting examined. And uh, my friend who runs the shop said, uh, I think I can get this back to playing to be able to stay in tune. I don't know about recording with it again. And a couple months later, I met with Mike out at the shop and the base was done. And it got done for way below what the estimates were. And I mean way below. And not only could it be played and stay in tune, but it's back to where it could be recorded. And um, I'm very proud to play a part in bringing that base back and keeping it alive. And Mike's Mike was blown away. He was speechless with that. So sometimes you get opportunity to do something really special like that. Thanks for listening. Join us next week for part two of the conversation. This has been a production of East Main Media, hosted by Brian Brodeur. Special thanks to audio engineer J.P. Conk and senior producer Kayla Galka. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a good rating. For more information, visit eastmainmedia.com. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.